Come, Lord Jesus, would you speak to us this morning and show us who you are as king. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you. The Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. The Old Testament passage and the gospel reading that we read today make it clear that we all worship something. Not worshiping is simply not an option. In the Old Testament passage, we watch someone, literally watch someone, make an idol. And Jeremiah mocks him, right? He compares the idol to a scarecrow in a cucumber field. And he proclaims the true God, but the Lord is the true God. He is the living God, the everlasting King. And in the gospel, the worship of money is spotlighted. And it becomes clear that when a choice has to be made between God and money, between God and idolatry, one can't serve both. You must make a choice. Another way of saying that not worshiping is simply not an option, that's appropriate here on Christ the King Sunday. This is the last Sunday of the Christian year. We start a new Christian year next week. So on Christ the King Sunday, another way of saying this is that we will always have a king. Americans um, tend to be kind of unfamiliar and kind of weird about talking about kings. We don't, our whole country was kind of predicated on we don't really like them. Um, but, king, but kings of old, the idea of a king is very different than our presidents or the way we think about presidents. Our presidents now can get in Twitter wars with media personalities, but the king demanded complete loyalty. Often kings would claim even divine lineage, that they were from God. This morning, I'm proposing that everyone on earth is a worshiper of something that everyone on earth has a king. David Foster Wallace, the great um, writer of this last generation who would not have identified as a Christian, but nevertheless, he said, in the day today trenches of adult life, there is actually no atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what we worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power. You will end up feeling weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over and you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart. You will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. And he says what's really insidious about these other forms of worship is not that they're evil so much as that they're unconscious, they're default settings. He says they're the kind of worship you just gradually slip into day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without ever being fully aware that that's what you're doing. And the so-called real world will not discourage you from operating on your default settings. 
because the so-called real world of men and money and power hums merrily along in a pool of fear and anger and frustration and craving and worship of self. We all worship something, but the scriptures tell us that we cannot worship the true God and anything else. He is a God that fills our hearts and forces everything else off the throne. But I want to say that us in the church have default settings too. We slip into worshiping other things. I'm a priest. I'm standing before you on in a robe. But that doesn't tell you who I worship. Look at how I spend my time. Look at how I spend my money. Look at what I desire and what I fear, what keeps me up at night. Look at how I respond when people criticize me or interrupt me. Look at what I want for my children. Look at my life and marriage behind closed doors, and you will see what I actually worship. And look at that in your own life. This should scare us a little bit. It should make us a little uncomfortable. I hope we're saying something like, wow, I may not really love who and what I say I love. That's the case for me, anyway. Part of why we gather here together each week is that we are intentionally reminding ourselves who is the true king. We are intentionally calling each other out of our default settings, of worshiping money or autonomy or our own way or comfort. We are calling each other together to worship the true king. So who do we worship as Christians? Who do we call the true king? So now let's look together at what this true king is like. Our passage today is from the book of Revelation um, that I'm going to look at, and it's a peek into the throne room of the true king. So a few quick caveats to note about the book of Revelation. This book freaks some of us out, and in certain wings of evangelicalism, um, it's become a bit of an, of an obsession with a focus on the so-called rapture and predicting the future. And maybe you grew up hearing that the locusts in the book of Revelation are really referring to Russian helicopters or that some politician you don't like is the Antichrist because of the number of letters in his name or something. Or maybe uh, you're familiar with the Left Behind series, which swept the nation. Um, but if it's possible, I'd like you to set all that aside for now, as we look at the book of Revelation. First off, most of what you might have heard about Revelation is completely made up and wrong. Um, but also, and more importantly, it will take our eyes off of what this passage is actually about, what's actually happening in Revelation and in the passage we read this morning. Revelation takes us into true reality. That's how to think about this book to show us what is happening now, not just in the future, and how it has implications for our life now and in the future. A lot of the symbols and numbers in the book are stock images in apocalyptic literature. They are intended not to be decoded for what they refer to in our news today, but for what the author, in this case John, was saying to his readers who he wrote to at the time. Luke Timothy Johnson says the whole message of Revelation is that the writer is speaking to Christians who are suffering. This is a time when evil appears to be triumphant. 
And he is saying to them, all appearances to the contrary, God is in charge of the world. This is true reality. So in this particular passage, we see Jesus. And let's look at what this true king is like. It says, Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. If you are really listening to that, I hope that you're saying something like, whoa, or OMG, or whatever your exclamation is. This does not seem to be describing gentle Jesus, meek and mild. This is a picture of Jesus as a divine warrior bringing judgment. He is faithful and true, meaning he will be faithful and true to bring justice to bring wrath on the enemies of God, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. Do you know why we're called to be peacemakers, to not make war? Do you know why we're called to not judge? It's because we have one who will judge and make war in perfect righteousness. None of us are up to that task. None of us can get this remotely right, but he will judge rightly. He's the only one who can. He is clothed in white, and this shows that he is perfectly pure. And that he is the righteous vindicator of those undergoing persecution and the judge of their oppressors. His eyes are like a flame of fire. What? His eyes are like a flame of fire. This is what we mean when we say he is coming to judge the living and the dead in the creeds. Jesus sees us and brings judgment to those in the church who turn away from God to ungodliness and apostasy or for ungodliness outside of the church. On his head are many diadems. A diadem, for those of you who don't know that word, is just a crown, essentially. And there are two other creatures in the book of Revelation who, ha who we see who have diadems, who have crowns on their head. One is the dragon and one is the beast. These are two satanic symbols of the devil, and of the devil's one, and then false kings or false empires, false leaders on the earth. And the dragon has seven crowns, and the beast has ten. But this warrior described has many diadems. The word here means an unending multiplicity of crowns, too many crowns to number. The meaning is really clear. There are powers here on earth, both spiritual and earthly powers, that do have real power. They have actual power to do damage, real damage in the lives of people on earth. But that th their power is slight. There's an end to it. It's fleeting. It's short-lived. It's just momentary. 
Here is the king of kings who has endless crowns, who has true eternal power. The power of this world is nothing compared to this king. And John is saying this, keep in mind, to people who are literally being killed and tortured by false kings and false empires of the world. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. This is likely actually not a reference to the crucifixion mainly, but to Isaiah 63, which describes the Lord's day of vengeance, when a righteous warrior brings God's judgment on the nations and rides in in a white robe covered in the blood of his enemies. And we read, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron and will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. Okay, so some of you, and I'm guessing a minority, react to this and think, this is so cool. <laughs> These are people who like war flicks, uh, war movies. They're probably into boxing. They're, they're comfortable with violence, and they really like it when the good guy wins. Another group finds this uncomfortable, finds it primitive and off-putting. We like the Jesus that feeds people and heals people. Who is this guy riding in on a horse covered in blood and bringing judgment? So I'm part of this latter group. I prefer the hippie Jesus. Um, yeah, I like Jesus with a flower behind his ear, preaching about peace. But... Um, Part of, part of the reason why is because I live pretty insulated from real injustice. A few years ago, I had a friend, um, some of our best friends were adopting a little girl from Ethiopia. We had prayed for her as a community for years. Finally, they got a picture in the mail of this beautiful baby waiting for adoption. And soon, months went by and kept going, and nothing was happening, and nothing was happening, and it became clear that something was wrong. Something was going wrong with the process. And what became clear is that uh, eventually, after a lot of investigation, they actually, there was a private investigator involved, is that this, um, the director of the orphanage overseas in Ethiopia was taking legal fees, taking adoption fees, and pocketing them, and never doing anything to try to find the right papers, to process the adoption, to move the adoption forward. He was keeping these kids more or less captive from families that were desperately waiting for them all over the world to gain money, to gain wealth. The authorities were being bribed, so they were doing nothing about it. And eventually, the adoption agency had to cut ties because of the corruption and found a different agency and last I heard, this was years ago, these kids are still here, are still in the orphanage, in pretty bad conditions, having no idea that they are desperately wanted in other places all over the world. And I heard about this right after I had had um, our first child. And I was, there was this sense of um, encountering really clear injustice. And I, as a new mom, was crying out to God that he would bring this man that was the director of the orphanage to repentance or that he would bring him to judgment, that he would bring justice. There was something inside of me that said, someone needs to see these children, to take care of them, to bring justice when no one else will bring justice. 
This true king is powerful above all kings and powers of this world, and he takes evil really seriously. He takes injustice seriously. He takes oppression of the weak very seriously. But here's where it gets uncomfortable, because evil isn't something just out there, some mean guy in Africa over an orphanage. What if my sin is as hideous as his in the sight of God? I know I have all kinds of justification about how my greed isn't really greed and how my selfishness isn't really selfishness, but so would this guy. He would have a story to tell you. He would have a justification. What if your sin and my sin is actually worthy of judgment? What if we really are that bad? I hope this makes us a little bit nervous. I read recently um, the the memoir Lit, which tells the story of a poet and memoirist, Mary Carr, and it's about her slow conversion to Catholicism for more or less agnosticism. And at one point in the book, she's kind of um, experimenting with spiritual ideas and awakening to a spiritual presence in her life. And so she decides to go to a liberal mainline church because she figures, she says, that with her uh, sexually permissive self and with her progressive politics, this church would best fit her at the time. And so she goes and she's talking to the pastor afterwards, and she says, what do you do with the problem of evil? How do you understand the problem of evil? And the pastor replied, oh, we don't believe in it. And she said that even as a non-Christian, there was so, um, the denial of the reality of evil was so evidently false to her that she never went back to that church. Let's not play down the need for judgment of evil. We can make God into this kind of mellow parent who wants to be like the cool dad or the cool mom. Like, oh, he's cool, he's mellow, he's down with it. But the Bible declares sin deserves judgment. The king does not mess around. He doesn't play with sin. He does not take sin lightly. But lest this terrify us too much, notice now that the king is not alone in this passage we read this morning. He has around him the armies of heaven arrayed in linen, white and pure. These are his people who he is protecting and defending. These are the saints. These are you. These are the people of God who he has formed, and they do not see this king as a terror but as a hero. The king of kings and the lord of lords is also seen in the same book of Revelation as the Lamb who was slain. The armies of God, his church, are clothed in white because the Lamb has taken away their sin. Sin deserves judgment. You will take that judgment on yourself, or Jesus will take it for you. If there is a place today where you see that Jesus is not on the throne, Repent. You can repent. This king is open for you to be part of the armies of God clothed in linen, white, and pure. And this lamb who is the hero and rescuer of the saints, who took our judgment, who loves us, 
is who we as Christians proclaim as the true king, not money or power or politics or America. This true king exposes the false claims of all other kings and all other empires. So we have a question that faces us this morning. Do we really worship this true king? The world does not know that Jesus is the true king, and we want to tell them, we want to proclaim. But what concerns me this morning together here isn't that those out there, isn't what those out there think about Jesus and the true king. It's what we here in the church think and who we are. Do we live like this is the true king? How would our lives be different in ascension? How would my life be different if we believed that this warrior is the true king? So really quickly, I want to run through three aspects of the reality of Christ the king. Number one, this king demands total loyalty, as we said. Our gospel passage makes it clear that we cannot have multiple kings. We cannot worship multiple things. We cannot love God in money or God in sex or God in comfort, or God in political power, or whatever it is for you. The second thing is the king is the true king regardless of how we feel about it. I'm working um, right now on a magazine piece with an editor, and it's, it's a different kind of thing than what I normally write because the magazine is um, a literary magazine for, they told me to assume that no one who is reading it has ever been to church or knows anything about the church, and to try to explain to them what the church is. Um, so the editor I'm working with is, is not a Christian, and we were talking about how the church is shaped around the story of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And he responded, you know, what is really unique about the church is that you're claiming that this story, your story, is true. That it's actually true. I have a friend who a few years ago... An unbeliever friend said, you know, I'm so glad that Christianity works for you. And I just started laughing. And I was like, it does not work for me. <laughs> this is not working for me. And I said, sometimes I think I work for it, which I was kidding, kind of. But what I meant, um, this was before I was a priest, so now I actually literally am employed by it. Uh, what I meant is that in ways, in, in really substantial ways, in the short term, having Jesus as king will make our life harder. It will mean ethical decisions that hurt sometimes. It, it will cost us some likability. It will make our life much more complex in ways. But the thing is, I told him I really believe it. I believe that Jesus rose from the dead, that he's the true king, and so that belief begins to call the shots. We are not proclaiming that having this king works for us. In many ways, seeking to live according to the reality of Jesus' kingship will make your life harder. John is writing to a people who were literally dying for their faith in Jesus. We as Americans, I've come to believe, are all, um, there's some part of us, all of us, that kind of believes the prosperity gospel that we all kind of believe that if we do our part, God will, take, will make things work out for us. But we don't follow the king because he makes our life work or because he works for us. We follow the king because we believe he is really, truly, actually the king of heaven and earth. 
And he loves us, yes, and he saves us and he cares for us. But he isn't our butler. He's the king. He doesn't work for us. So lastly, last point, Christ the king has conquered. A unique thing about Revelation as opposed to all other apocalyptic literature is that it does not declare that the triumph of God over evil and death is a future expectation. It claims that that has already been realized in heaven, that that is the true reality. Luke Timothy Johnson said, Jesus' resurrection is the pledge of God's cosmic victory over evil. The hope of the saints does not rely simply on the promise of God made in the distant past. It is based on the present power of God manifest in the resurrection of Jesus. We are coming to the end of our church year. This is our last week, and we'll start a new church year with Advent. And for many of us, it's been a hard year. We began with an election that divided this country and continues to. We had massive hurricanes. We've seen the worst mass shooting this year in the history of the United States. We've seen a rise in white supremacy in the horrors of Charlottesville. The last few months have found the president tweeting about nuclear war with North Korea. And more and more and more every week, sexual abuse accusations come out against leaders in every field. And that's just in the news. Our congregation has seen the deaths of people we love. We've seen suffering. We've seen financial struggles. I personally, this year, have seen the death of my father and have lost two unborn children. This year holds so much grief that we're ending. And we're meeting together, and we're proclaiming, like Revelation, that whatever evidence to the contrary, Jesus is the true and sovereign and risen and good king. And as we go forward into the next church year, how can we live in security of knowing that Jesus is the true king? How can we live in that? How can we live knowing that he is faithful and true? One scholar says that peering into this throne room of Jesus exposes our divided loyalties. Could we let this king show us what we falsely worship? Could we let him lead us to repentance today for the things we run to to try to hew out our own identity, to make life work for us, to make people like us? What would it mean to walk into the political arena in our country, not as people freaking out or anxious or afraid or trying to shore up our own power, but believing that right now Jesus is king? This year, what would it mean for us to steward our money as if Jesus is the true and real king? These pledge cards that we're going to hand in about our giving they aren't because Jesus needs your money. Did you hear this description of the guy in Revelation covered in the blood of his enemies with infinite numbers of crowns? He doesn't need you. He is not short on cash. <laughs> we are invited into this. He demands and he deserves everything. Some folks say, I don't want to go to church because they just ask you for your money. 
well, I'm here to tell you, look, that's the least of it. That's the least of what we ask you for. Jesus asked for everything. He deserves everything. He asked us for our time. Could we steward our time as if Jesus is the true and real king? Could we steward our politics and our love for our neighbor and our words as if Jesus is the true king? Could we steward our suffering as if Jesus is the true king? Could we steward our joys and our strength as if Jesus is the true and real king? What would that look like? Let's pray together. Lord, would you show us as a church, as a community, how to live by the reality that you are the true king? Would you expose our false loyalties and bring us to repentance and freedom? Would you show us your goodness and your love for us? And would you show us your kingship and power and sovereignty that you demand and deserve everything? Would you teach us to worship you and to love you? We thank you that you are on the throne. We pray that we would live according to that. In your name.